very warm welcome on a rather chilly evening uh, to the LSE tonight. Um, thanks very much for coming along. Uh, I'll be very brief in, in my introduction. We all, um, all of us, we all know, I think, certainly if you're here, you must know that this has been uh, an extraordinary uh, year or so in the Arab world, in the Middle East. And so it's great. It's great that the LSE does have a new Middle East center. The timing couldn't have been better, really. Um, and it's a very, very good time uh, to hear from our speaker tonight. I should explain, my name's Charlie Beckett, and I run something called Polis. Uh, that's the LSE's media think tank. And indeed, we do take a special interest in Middle East media. You'd, meet, you'd be mad not to, really. Um, we've just, for example, completed the first stage of a research project looking at how uh, mainstream media in the Arab world is adjusting to the political changes, but also to the changes in uh, social media and other uh, communications technologies. Um, and we took an interest in Middle East me media uh, before the so-called Arab Spring. I was just saying to Vadar that um, uh, five years ago when I came to the LSE, I used to work at the BBC, and ITN's Channel 4 News. When I came to the, BBC, uh, to the LSE five years ago to set Polis up, uh, the first speaker that we had, the first journalist who gave a public lecture, uh, was in fact from Al Jazeera, uh, a reporter called Yosri Fuda, who at the time was better known by the nickname of uh, Osama bin Laden's postman. He was the guy who used to get all those DVDs of Osama bin Laden in a cave that would then, then appear on Al Jazeera, uh, much to the frustration of the White House at the time. Um, and I wanted to have somebody from Al Jazeera at that time because, for me, it was clear uh, that uh, Al Jazeera were one of the most important uh, factors in change in the Arab world in the Middle East and was certainly one of the most exciting and interesting uh, media organisations of the time. And I think they continue to be so as well. So it's, uh, I'm very, very pleased to introduce our speaker tonight, Madar Kanfar, who joined Al Jazeera, I think, in the late 90s uh, and worked as a frontline correspondent for them in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. He was uh, remarkably quickly promoted to managing uh, director of Al Jazeera and then general director of the Al Jazeera network. Um, and so obviously a sort of natural leader, uh, as well as a, an excellent journalist. He left Al Jazeera a year ago and has now adopted uh, a role of a sort of roaming uh, activist thinker and also president of a new Arab think tank called the Shark Forum. Um, so I'm very, very pleased uh, to welcome Madar Kanfar to talk to you tonight. After he's spoken, obviously you'll get a chance uh, to ask questions as well. The subject, as it says up there, well, I should, sorry, as a social media expert, I should mention, if you're tweeting tonight, there's the hashtag, LSE Kanfar, uh, and the title is Engaging Political Islam and the New Realities of the Middle East. Madar, please. Good evening. Thank you very much for coming. And I actually would like to start by telling you a story. I was a correspondent over Jazeera in uh, Afghanistan, later on in Iraq. But during the coverage of the Afghani story at that time, this is 2001, 
when the beginning of the, the beginning of the war in Afghanistan, it was really very difficult for journalists to understand the story. And always journalism, as you know, especially broadcast journalism, has a habit of immediacy and, to a large extent, superficiality. Sometimes people would like to file a story, literally, in three, four hours. You write your story, you shoot your images, you edit, and you feed. And it will be on the screen that night for a few hours, a few news bulletins, and next day you are going to be busy again making another story. So you have very little time to contemplate, to contemplate and to think about reality that you are covering. So journalism has done a lot of harm. This form of journalism has done a lot of harm to complicated or to complex stories that people are reporting. And the Afghan story definitely was amongst them. One day I attended, I went after we filed the story, to a coffee shop, not a coffee shop, a place where coffee, not coffee actually, tea is sold, because <laughs> I mean, they call it coffee shop, I don't know. But it is a tea shop, let us say. Green tea without sugar. And the gentleman who is serving us, of course, is one of the people who were injured in one of the previous civil wars in Afghanistan. Uh, and the place was uh, destroyed, all destroyed palace, that part of it, has become a place for this gentleman to sell something and to make some money for his family. We were sitting and talking to each other. We were a group of, I mean, Arab journalists, myself and my colleagues. And then on the next table, we had some two Afghans as well, sitting and drinking tea. When they heard us talking Arabic, they came to us and they said, uh, are you Arabs? We said, yes, we are. They hugged us and they welcomed us and they said, you are our brothers, thank you for coming, and so on and so forth. I said, okay, from where are you? They said, we are from Kandahar. We have been walking the last nine days from Kandahar to come to Kabul in order to check on our family. And their relatives were not actually there, and they suspect they might have migrated to Pakistan. And the two guys who are youth, but at the same time they are from Pishtun tribe, Pishtun ethnic or ethnicity, uh, it looks they are very poor and definitely they are not in a, in, a, in a, I mean the people have been working for the night, last nine days, which means that they are in a very also bad um, uh, shape. But we had some discussion with them about what's happening in Kandahar, how do they see the reality and so on and so forth. After we finished, I went to the person who is selling the tea and I gave him, uh, I paid him for our table and for the uh, guys' table as well. And I left. Just about 50 meters far from the entrance of that place, I heard them screaming and shouting behind me. I looked behind and these two guys were running and they came to me and they said, did you pay for the tea? I said, yes. They said, but why did you do that? I said, I mean, really just, I mean, it's one dollar or so. I mean, it doesn't matter. You should please accept that from me. They said, you are insulting us. You know you know that we should pay for guests. Guests do not pay for us. You are our guest. It is not acceptable at all. And then they started insisting, and I insisted not to take the money. They insisted they should pay the money, until one of them literally started crying. And I saw the tears coming out of his eyes. 
then I decided to take the money. Why this story is important? This story is important because to understand any society or culture, you need to understand the spirit of that nation, the collective memory, the collective uh, mind of the nation. And that provides you, if you are a journalist or you are a thinker or analyst, with tremendous power of defining not only the parameters whereby you can understand the reality, it, it gives you, it provides you also with power in order to forecast for the future and predict how things will happen. Most of us, when we cover wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq and many other parts of the Arab world, we start from now, as if the story started today, a few hours ago, the last press conference, the last event, the last incident, the last explosion, no history, no depth, no context most of the time. Two hours, two minutes, sorry, of a report on TV, maybe followed by one or two interviews, but describing complicated issue, describing something that has been in making maybe for the last 1,000 years, like the story of Iraq. You know? So the issue was, in fact, in my opinion, something scale. Media was playing a negative role in introducing the dynamics of societies. Without understanding the social and cultural fabric of the society, you are going to fail in understanding the reality. Or you will be puzzled by it. And then you will lose canvas, your canvas, in understanding where the society is heading. The phenomena of political Islam, again, I have been speaking about this topic for a while now, and I've discovered that the conception, conceptual, you know, the concept of political Islam itself is, is very vague uh, in many circles. So people cannot maybe define exactly what you are talking about when you speak about Islamists or political Islam. And I found that a lot of people have started to hear about this issue just now, recently, because of the arrival of certain political groups into power, especially in Tunisia, Morocco, and in uh, now the, the Egyptian uh, uh, elections. But I can, and everyone knows that we study this phenomena, that this phenomena is organic. It is historical. It has been in making for the last 100 years almost, when Hassan al-Banna decided to establish the Muslim Brotherhood movement in 1927. So it is not something that has just started. And the phenomena itself, when it started, it was a response to modernity. So Islamic movements are a result of modernization in the Islamic world. Because the early you know, image about Islamists or Muslim Brotherhood in particular, which is the, the mother group of all Islamic movements, was that they are breaking away from the traditional framework of understanding the society. So those who stood against Muslim Brotherhood at the beginning were the traditional ulama, traditional institutions, and tra traditional forces in the society. They saw them, they are introducing new understanding of Islam that was not in line with the deeply entrenched traditional understanding that these people were preaching. So the phenomenon itself is a result of modernization. The leaders of this phenomena were not ulama. They were not scholars or theologians. Most of them were educated in secular schools. Most of them are graduates of various disciplines, very little out of Sharia schools. Most of them are graduates of secular schools, and some of them professors, doctors, engineers, and 
you know, or, or walks of life. So the phenomenon itself started, started as a departure from the norm. When the Arab world in the late 20s was going through major crisis of trying to identify what kind of identity societies should form after the collapse of the Ottoman Khilafah and after the arrival of the new nation state. So that is just to start with. The second, political Islam is not monolithic by nature. When you speak about political Islam, you cannot speak about certain kind of phenomena that has defined borders and defined you know, ideological framework. Political Islamists were trying to uh, re-present Islam in a modern terminology and try to find ways whereby they could be good Muslims, but at the same time, they could live their new modern life. So this kind of formula is still evolving. It has not reached its final destination. So when we speak about political Islam, we are not talking about accomplished, finished project. We are speaking about a phenomena that every day something new is happening. This is why up to the 30s or 35, 34 at that time, Muslim Brotherhood were concerned about education, basically. Then after that, they started getting involved in politics. Up to the 50s, they had developed some kind of political understanding and political activism. They had clashed with Jamal Abdel Nasser, and they were put in jail. And in many other countries, they also had the same fate. Up to the 60s, they developed another doctrine of thinking, where Sayyid Qutb came and introduced new concepts about the issue of governance and the issue of the legitimacy of, the, uh, of, of governments. And that led to further dispute with the state. He himself was hanged by Jamal Abdel Nasser. Then after that, in the 70s, they came back on the scene and they started another, another uh, circle of, of activism. In Sudan, at that moment, they became part of the power sharing agreement with Numeiri. In Turkey, in 1970, they launched a political party under Najmuddin Arbakan. And they again started to become involved in politics. And he himself became the first deputy prime minister in the secular Turkey. Arbakan himself was a result of secular Turkey. He was the he was a product of secular Turkey. Hassan al-Turabi in Sudan was a, pres uh, a result of, of uh, the Islamic movement, which is Sudanese by nature and priorities. And Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt were still, in a way, another conservative because they have just been uh, taken away from jail and they have not yet developed proper uh, political engagement. Now, we go up to the twin 80s, again, another circle of participation started when the Yemeni Islamic movement formed an Islah group, which is a coalition between the uh, uh, Sunni activists with Zaydi tribal leaders. You know, and again, the Islamic movement in Yemen was a result of the Yemeni, of the Yemeni society and the Yemeni political development, rather than a copy of the Egyptian or Sudanese or Jordanian. And then the Jordanian Islamic movement became part of the parliament in 1989 under the king and under the constitution. Then they participated in government and they had six ministers and so on and so forth. Then you have on the other end as well, you have in Pakistan, the Islamic al-Jama'ah al-Islamiyah that also started as a Pakistani movement 
from within the Pakistani society, taking into consideration the Pakistani culture and tradition and the Pakistani social and political system. So the phenomena itself is not something that we could put in one frame and say, that's it, this is the political Islam. Now, what I argue, I say that events, political developments, are the most important element in the evolution of Islamic movements rather than ideology. It is politics that made Najmuddin Arbakan accept to be part of rigid secular system in Turkey. And it is politics and reality that made Erdogan establish his party and leave Najmuddin Arbakan party. It is reality that made Islamists in the 1990s acknowledge democracy as the only route for change and reform. Why? Because they have gone through harsh experiences. One of them was in 1982, when Muslim Brotherhood confronted with the state in Syria and 30,000 people lost their lives. So that harsh lesson led the Islamic movement to decide that no more violence, we are going the route of democracy. And since then, they went into that route without without hesitation. It was in the 19s when they started getting close to the proper and maybe the common understanding of what democracy, human rights, the rights of women, and almost the, the whole dictionary of secular movements in the Arab world. So slowly, slowly, the borders that define Islamic movements from others started to fade away and more pragmatic, dynamic approach started to emerge. I have just come from Tunisia and I have met all the leaders of the Tunisian uh, political uh, you know, groups and parties. Islamists right now are making a coalition with secularists and with leftists. The president is the leader of a secular party. The speaker of the parliament is the leader of a leftist group. And the prime minister is an Islamist. So this kind of coalition can give you a lot how much Islamists are willing to be to integrate within the reality based on interest as they see it and also based on necessities that are there in order to shape the future of their countries. I have heard very little ideology from anyone who I have sit with, from Islamists. Contrary to that, I feel there is more radical ideological discourse emerging this time from the secular circles, not the Islamic circles. So when the Islamists are trying to manage the society based on normal rules that everyone knows, good economy, good governance, fighting corruption, rebuilding the institutions, giving rights to the people, and to women, by the way. And you know that the Tunisian party, which is the Islamic party of Al-Nahda, has more than, I think, 42 or 43 female MPs in the parliament out of 49 in total, which is also something interesting to notice. So there is no debate or discussion, discussion taking place within these Islamic movements about the role of women, should we keep them at home. That has, in my opinion, ended in Turkey the same. The, uh, the party which is led by Erdogan has members in the parliament who have also female members, and no one has an issue about it. There are a few terminologies that should be qualified in order to complete the picture. Now, a lot of people would say that Islamists are there in order to implement Sharia. 
Okay, fine. Now Islamists would say, yes, we would like to implement Sharia. But what does Sharia mean? And what kind of Sharia Islamists are actually calling, or political Islamists at this moment in time, are, are trying to implement? Is it the legislative part of it? Is it the issue of crime and punishment? Or is it the moral one? I did not hear anyone in the Islamic political circles talking about implementing Sharia in a form of hudud, which is the form of legal punishment of certain particular uh, crimes. I did not hear that. What I heard about Sharia, I heard Sharia as social justice, Sharia of transparency, Sharia of you know, giving rise to the public in defying the authority when the authority is going or astray from, from the representation of the public. I have heard a, you know, a proper understanding of Sharia, in my opinion, does not at all contradict any understanding of justice in any society. So the issue of Sharia, even if it is used in the rhetoric, we should always ask about what does what kind of Sharia we are talking about at this moment in time. Because even Sharia, the concept Sharia is new in our culture, by the way. We have the word Sharia in Quran used to describe the way, the path of righteousness. But to say that Sharia in Quran was used to describe punishments is not true. So now, I attended myself a seminar in Tunisia where 35 Islamists sat together from various groups to define what kind of Sharia the new Islamic movements are going to establish. And all of them agreed that we are talking about Sharia in a moral framework rather than in a legislative one. Why? Simply because you know, societies that we are running at this moment in time, we should acknowledge and recognize that development in the society has reached a point where you need also to look into this matter. We, they cannot eliminate Sharia in its you know, legal perspective, but they can always say that you can delay the implementation of it or you can evade the implementation of it at this moment in time. But definitely, we will accept that. We will accept that this is a step forward of understanding reality and responding to it without complicating uh, issues. The second terminology that you will hear a lot about and that is also scary to a lot of circles is Salafi Islam. The Salafis are another group of people. They do not belong to the school of political Islam. They have emerged out of schools, most of it religious schools, religious institutions, and they believe that political Islam was not very much committed to the spirit of orthodoxy Islam. Therefore, they wanted Muslims to become much more close to their understanding, their version of understanding of Islam, starting from the way that you dress to the way that you imagine the world around you. Islamists, or let us call Salafis, are not actually, again, one school of thought. You have, it is extremely decentralized movement. Most of the time, they evolve out of one scholar or one, you know, theology uh, scholar, and then they form around him a group. So they are known that this is the group of so-and-so sheikh or the so-and-so alim, but not a phenomenon, not organized in a political movement like Muslim Brotherhood who have registered political parties and they have established for the last 70 years groups and movements that have very clear hierarchy and structure. Right now, the Salafis, for the first time, 
they registered the party in Egypt and they ran for elections and they got about 20% of the votes in the last, last Egyptian, uh, last Egyptian uh, elections. While in Tunisia, the only group that is described as Islamic is another party, which is political Islam. I am not scared of the Salafis for one major reason. The concept of politics, of political Islam, has been in making for the last 70 or 80 years. So it is there as a model. Anyone call himself Muslim or Islamist would like to implement his understanding of Islam through politics, he will find one model in front of him, which is the model of the political Islam. There are other models. Someone will tell me, what about Taliban? This is closer to the understanding of the Salafi trend. But again, Taliban is not projected in any way as success the state of Taliban, in a way or another, led to the failure of the state and the failure of the, of the society. While success stories that belong to understanding of Islam are not actually from that school of thought. It is from the school of thought of political Islam. It is Turkey, number one, which is providing a role model for most Islamic movements to follow. And then certain kind of uh, participation that took place during the last two, three decades between Islamists and, and current governments. So Salafis eventually will start approaching the same discourse that Muslim Brotherhood approached regarding politics. Now, listening to their spokesperson on our TV uh, screens, you, you feel that they are repeating the same rhetoric when they are asked about the human rights, about women's rights, about democracy. They are also repeating the same, they are using the same dictionary. Now, are they sincere or not, regardless? As long as this is the only discourse that they can manage, in my opinion, they will start moving into that direction as well. Because there is no other discourse that could describe how the state could become Islamic. How the modern state could become Islamic. The modern state cannot be Islamic. Because the modern state, by nature, and by definition and origin has been built on foundations that not in a way or another ideological and I don't think that the Salafis can imagine even a model besides the historical model which existed which we call Khilafah and no one argue at this moment in time that Khilafah could be established in Egypt or in Tunisia or in Libya so the only model available in front of the Salafis is the model of Muslim Brotherhood understanding of politics I'm not really I don't feel a huge threat. Let us you know, stop here and say and ask one question. What does this mean as far as the Arab world is concerned and the, the West is concerned? As far as the Arab world is concerned, it is the first time in the last few decades that the Arabs have been given back their voice and their ability to choose because always we were told what we should see and what we should do and what we should select. Right now, the people have been given the choice. People elected Islamists. Islamists were not part of the arrangement of the past, as far as politics is concerned. My understanding of the why people elected Islamists, because people wanted complete departure from the past. They didn't want to look to the past. The past here is dictatorship, corrupt regimes, and licensed political parties, they, they were also part of the past because they accepted to work within the parameters of the state or the, 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 
parameters defined by the state. So people, when they chose Islamists, Islamists were the only maybe sector of the society that was either rejected completely by the state or always under very heavy pressure. So people went to them because they would like to guarantee that there is no link with the corrupt authoritarian past. Let them secure the future. That means that Islamists, in order to secure the future, they need to establish consensus within the societies. Consensus that does not only you know, concentrate on Islamic movements and Islamic groups within the society, but on secular, leftist, and nationalist groups. And this is what the Tunisians are doing, and this is what the Egyptians are promising. No one said that we are going to establish a government, although they have sometimes majority, like the Egyptians, alone. We are going to share power with others because they acknowledge that they have been elected there to lead a phase of a transition where consensus is important. What kind of consensus? You know we have no consensus, political consensus in the Arab world on anything. In Britain here, when you elect the Conservative or the, the, the Labour Party, basically, you know, they are there to compete amongst themselves to achieve the interest of Britain. There is, there are certain kind of, you know, overarching values where everyone should accept and understand, and you should compete to achieve that. In the Arab world, we have not yet defined what kind of values that we should have, and then we compete in order to achieve that. I mean, the consensus here, which I'm talking about, is a consensus on grand you know, agenda that the society must understand and respect and becomes something that everyone else must work towards. The other thing, we need to have political imagination that is different from the past. The political imagination that might lead us to adopt the spirit of the revolution and to transcend it from a Tahrir Square into the palaces of our new presidents and our new prime ministers. In a Tahrir Square, when the youth started the revolution, they introduced a new concept in organizing themselves based on networking and not based on the hierarchy or the structure where governments and opposition adopted. This is why they succeeded. They succeeded because they were developing these kind of networks as an alternative to the decaying, aging, corrupt structures that the society for the last few decades has adopted, including opposition itself, which was very distant from the spirit of the youth. And there is another reason why the youth have succeeded. They adopted agenda that was not dividing the society ideologically. The people who were working together in order to make the revolution in Egypt and Tunisia were Muslims, Christians, secularists, leftists, nationalists. No one even asked what your theology or ideology, how do you see the world? They were unified on fighting corruption and fighting dictatorship. And they succeeded in creating major consensus within themselves, and they led that into a huge revolution. Political parties are not used to that. Political groups, until today, are defining themselves based on ideology, and that is a major risk. In my opinion, we need to have another political imagination whereby we open up the scope of thinking, and we start including others into our active uh, uh, domain. Therefore, ideology is not the right approach that political groups should approach the, the future. The future, as being defined by the youth in the Arab world, 
is not yet entrenched and embedded in the new political structure or new political life. And that is, in my opinion, something that we should work towards. And it will happen eventually uh, because the current setup is not capable of handling the future. The West, you know, Western governments, in particular certain Western governments and leaders, have been part of the tragedy that happened in the Arab world during the last five, six decades. For one simple reason, they accepted dictatorship and authoritarian regimes because they wanted to establish stability in the region and to achieve certain kind of interests. That failed, simply. These puppets could not achieve stability in the Arab world. You are now in front of a new reality. This reality is not made by international powers and is not made by any foreign intervention. It is made by the will of the public. The will of the public is going to be free. And the public in the future are not going to accept leaders, presidents, and governments who will succumb to the will of certain governments because of certain kind of approach. They will revolt against them. But also for the first time, you have people in power who represent the will of the masses. And this is great news for the West. In my opinion, we have an, a great chance of establishing good relationship and achieving our interest in the West without trying to meddle in the process itself and use it to favor certain sectors of the society against the other. This is why the fear of political Islam is not justified. Political Islam at this moment in time is not taking a stance against Western governments that supported Hosni Mubarak and Zain al-Abidin bin Ali, and I don't think they will do, because also they are pragmatic enough to understand international politics and balance of power, and they will deal with the West or the East based on the interest of their countries. So we have a new chance whereby we are dealing with represented, truly representative leaders. And if we reach some kind of agreement with them, we know that these agreements will survive the political turmoil, not like what happened before. You reach secret agreement with some leader, and then after that, when he's gone, you have to start again from beginning. So that is very important. The second, the more our societies become democratized, the more it will, they will become tolerant regarding many issues in the region and internationally. And I'm not sure, you know, to what extent, but I do believe that the kind of relationship between Western governments and dictatorships in the Arab world led to the formation of Al-Qaeda and the formation of radical groups in the Arab world. Most of these movements emerged as a response to foreign intervention and at the same time response to Arab leaders who were seen as only puppet for the West. So now if you have a new environment, then the whole issue of radical movements and military groups and so on and so forth will start actually losing ground. They have started losing ground anyway because people can express their views through parliaments and democratic structures and through internet. Why do they need to start underground movements in order to kill and slaughter others? So in my opinion, it is a win-win scenario. We should not be scared of what's happening in the Arab world, but we should give it time. <laughs> These are not Polish diplomats. You know, the current prime minister of, of Tunisia spent in jail 16 years, 10 years in isolation. 
10 years. Now, when I heard that story, I thought the man, definitely 10 years, if you put someone and look him up 10 years alone in a small cell, he will lose his mind. I mean, I don't know psychologically how you can survive. So I made a point of sitting and chatting with him for a long time. I found the man very reasonable, very rational. He understands the world very well. And he responds to every question in a very smart and diplomatic way. So we are not in front of people. Although they spent 15, 16 years in jail, they are still capable of handling their political reality in a brilliant manner. And they are tolerant. I remember covering the story of Nelson Mandela when he took power in, 2000, in 1994. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in power, and he became the most tolerant leader in Africa. And he achieved great society when they negotiated marriage between you know, various segments of the society. South Africa today is prosperous. So yes, we have leaders. Nelson Mandela himself was regarded as a terrorist and a radical. He was banned from coming to England. But later on, Nelson Mandela proved that he introduced a new paradigm of thinking, which is different from any other political party in South Africa. So why not also thinking of these people who are coming to power now after long time of, of, of actually exclusion and, and maybe uh, uh, marginalization, that they could really introduce new paradigm of thinking, and they could shift the debate and discussion and the imagination of Arab nations towards the future, rather than concentrating on corrupt uh, reality or concentrating on a glorious past. So I think truly that we have a chance in order to explore something different from what any other party in the, in the Arab world has done through the arrival of the so-called political Islam. Thank you very much. Right. Th thanks very, very much for that. Um, something was obviously sinking in. I've never seen so many people taking notes and or twittering. They're either finishing essays that they're supposed to hand in tomorrow or they were actually um, uh, being attentive. It, we've got a couple of microphones and I'm going to ask you to sort of stick your hand up and if you could say who you are before you answer. But if you don't mind, I'm going to dodge in quickly with one question, which... Um, your comment about um, this new kind of networking politics that is somehow creating a kind of uh, ecosystem of activism and communication as an alternative to the sort of decayed uh, structures. Um, that's really interesting when you think about how that fits in more generally with kind of communications and media around some of the political changes we've, we've seen. Let's take for granted that Al Jazeera did have some kind of significant role in this. Do you think that there is going to be a burgeoning now of what we used to call kind of mainstream media in some of these states? Or do you think we're still going to be reliant on those kind of networks, the Facebooks and the, the other more grassroots media? How optimistic are you about... Um, a real forum opening up and an accountability opening up in, in these countries? In fact, I must say I was optimistic when everyone was pessimistic. Right. Now, four or five years ago, whenever we attended any, any conference about media, everyone was scared about the arrival of new media and to what extent that could pose a threat to the so-called traditional or mainstream media. The Arab Spring, in my opinion, has proven that a new ecosystem could be in operation an ecosystem where traditional media, 
Al-Jazeera, in this case, I was leading Al-Jazeera uh, during the Arabs, the beginning of the revolution, and the activists on the ground who were sending to us the images when our correspondents were banned from traveling and covering the story. We covered the whole revolution of Tunisia <coughs> through this kind of cooperation. We covered most of the revolution in Egypt through this kind of cooperation. But when activists were banned, when the government brought down internet and the, the service of internet was cut on 28th of January, it was Al Jazeera that picked up the voice of, of, of bloggers and the voice of activists and the youth and amplified it. So we were necessary as traditional media for their survival and for them reaching out to wider sector of the society. And they were necessary for us to reach out to the reality on the ground when we couldn't do that. I just give you one example. You remember in, in a Friday called the Friday of Ghadab, Friday of Anzar or Ra, which is 28th of January, 2011. That day, you know, our correspondent had a camera and he's filming approaching demonstrations. But we discovered through internet that we have six, seven streams coming from various angles of activists who were streaming the, 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 the marches. We split the screen into four. One single event is covered from four angles. This would have been impossible with our ordinary capabilities. It was possible because of their involvement and activism. And the last point which I would like to mention, in the next five years, a lot of concepts will change in journalism. The concept of mainstream, in my opinion, will end. The concept of broadcast might even itself end. So the concept of broadcast, I think people are moving into much more customized, individually tailored TV or, let us say, I don't know what, I mean, there's something new has to emerge. Because as you see, the, the, the fast, uh, the evolution of technology will introduce to us a new, crea new creation that will be, you will be able to watch whatever you want, like, and to stream whenever you like your own output and to interact fully with the story and to be part of it. This kind of model is going to dominate the future. It is not the mainstream traditional structure. So yes, networks, social networking is there to stay and not only to stay, to become integral part of the new wave of media presence. This is why I called my new company integral media, you know, because I think it is a sort of integration amongst various uh, parties and various platforms. Great. Okay, I've got my media bit in there, but feel free to row however you wish. Where have we got mics? Got one there. Can you take the gentleman there in the black, please? Let's take one questions one by one, but if you can keep them quite brief. Um, thank you very much. My name is Mohammed Al Azraq. I'm a research fellow at King's College. My question is about Arab think tanks, and uh, uh, Mr. Hunford just started the think tank. Uh, I would like to ask if you think that they will have a role in sort of uh, devising uh, policies that are followed by governments. I mean, like in, here in Britain, we have Chatham House. In the US, there's the Brookings Institution that are quite influential in foreign policy and also domestic policy. Uh, will there be sort of equivalent to those in the Arab world? And, and do you hope that your think tank will be playing such a role. Thank you. Should I answer? Yeah, I think just take yes, uh, a sharp forum, as we call it, which was launched last week in Tunisia, is going to provide 
an umbrella for organizations, political groups, social networks, and even business people to sit together and define the agenda of the future in the Arab world. We, we, we chose the theme engaging the future uh, as the uh, motto of our, of, our, uh, of our forum, actually. It is not a think tank, per se, but it is something that where people could reach some kind of consensus. We are going to establish annual forum, but also we have specialized forums to get involved in defining exactly what future and agenda and the priorities that the Arab world should have in order to transit into democracy and, and prosperity in the future. We have never been talking to each other in the Arab world. As you know, we used to meet in the West, by the way. Most of the activists used to meet in the West, not in the Arab world, because dictators there would never allow free environment of talking. For the first time, we can sit together and know each other even. You know, a lot of people don't know each other. They have never been talking to each other. They have seen each other on TVs, but they couldn't sit together and talk. So we need that kind of environment, and the Shark Forum is going to provide it. We need hundreds of institutions, think tanks, research centers, in order to develop the new thinking that should emerge in the Arab world, the new democracy that should be brought to the Arab world, the social... I'll tell you one story, simple one. You know, you know Yemen. Anyone from Yemen here? I mean, Yemen is a country that was regarded in the Arab world until very recently, a few months ago, as the most traditional country in the Arab world. So tribal leaders and chiefs and women are not seen because they always cover, but also they are part of, not part of the political environment. Because of the revolution and because of people interacting with each other, I mean, I have never, personally speaking, I have never expected that chiefs of tribes in Yemen will repeat slogans that are chanted by a lady in At-Taghir Square in Sana'a. That happened. And Tawakkul Karman today, he has got, has, has, has got a Nobel Peace Prize, and she is a Yemeni. So there is very deep change happening within the society. It's not only political. Even society started rediscovering itself and started getting rid of sub-identities for the sake of more you know, collective and sometimes national identity and sometimes not even national, even cross-national identities where the Libyans, the, because you are on the Facebook, not necessarily the Egyptians. The Egyptians are on the same Facebook, but also they will have the Saudis with them, and they will have the Moroccans and the Libyans at the same Facebook talking to each other. So there is a new collective identity emerging in the Arab world that is across borders as well, not only national. Great. Okay. Lady over there, please. Thank you. Uh, Linda Hayden, LSE. Uh, the one model of political Islam that you didn't touch on at all is Iran. Um, can you perhaps comment on what lessons and thoughts uh, uh, are there uh, about Iran amongst the Islamist movements in the Arab world? What lessons they've learned, what their what um, what their thinking is in in terms of that model? One other related possibly question. Um, you talked about how it was the alternative networks and the avoidance of ideology that were so important in the success of, of the Arab movements. Um, those two characteristics were certainly very much there in Iran as well um, a couple of years earlier. 
Do you have any ideas on why the first failed, whereas the, the Arab ones have been so successful? Thank you. As you know, we have two schools of thought in Islam. The first one is the Shia, the Sunnah, and then the second one, the Shia. What I describe today is political Islam as seen by Sunni Muslims, definitely, for one major reason. In, in Shia, in Shi'ism in particular, you have some kind of hierarchy and structure within the religious establishment that should be observed and should be respected. So you have the Marja, who is the person, the most senior person within the madhab that people should religiously imitate, and then they become disciples of that particular imam or sheikh. And in this case, you know, most of the time they play, really, I mean, uh, they play major role in political transformation. You have a Sistani in Iraq, for example, you know maybe uh, the name, you know uh, Khamenei himself in Iran, who is regarded above politics. He is the leading figure, but also at the same time, he is Marja. He is a religious figure that people refer to him in order to get proper understanding and fatwa about their own uh, affairs. In the Islamic, in the Sunni, in Sunni Islam, we do not really have that kind of structure. In Sunni Islam, Muslims believe that the Ummah or the nation itself is the reservoir of knowledge and truth. So knowledge and the truth should be seen through consensus, ijma, but not through the hierarchy of religious establishment. The religious establishment in Iran still plays major role in the formation of the state. The religious establishment in the Arab world, as a traditional one, is in fact very marginal in the political development because political Islam phenomena is not subscribing to the religious establishment. In this case, Al-Azhar, for example, the most senior, uh, the biggest institution in the Islamic world, which represents some kind of uh, important legacy. But to what extent Al-Azhar is playing a major role in politics? Nothing, basically. You know? To what extent other Islamic institutions play role in politics? Nothing. What plays role in politics is networks of intellectuals and activists who come to recognize and acknowledge certain kind of ideals and they developed around them parties which we call political Islam. So this is why my definition of political Islam is as seen by Sunnis rather than as seen by Shias. Okay. Let's come down the front, shall we actually? This lady here. And then let's come right down the front as well. That lady there on the front. Please. Uh, I have two quick questions. The first uh, is about ideology. You said ideology is not the right approach now. However, if we look at political Islam and why it was established, ideology was behind it and basically establishing a Muslim state or nation for all Muslims. So what do you mean by that if it's dead? So what does political Islam mean in this case? My second question, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to take you back to Al Jazeera now. And I would like to hear more uh, from you about Al Jazeera's role uh, in light of what has been happening in the past two years. And do you really think that Al Jazeera was neutral and was showing the, 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 the full side of the story? Because we still have other um, countries that are not democratic in the Arab world, and we are all aware of that, but we don't see them on Al Jazeera. So why is that? Thank you. I, I said that political Islam was defined also on ideological uh, you know, lines. And still it is. Political Islam as in parties of today. When they were in opposition, the ideological, the ideological 
thinking was much more intense and concentration of ideology was huge in order to protect the identity from the pressure of governments. <coughs> so now we have the opportunity of loosening up that a little bit. So Islamists will start becoming less ideological and more pragmatic. So it is a process. Now what I was saying that since youth in the Arab world have given us a great example of new movements based on networking and also based on, on common values, I think this is a great role model for Islamists and for secularists to start following rather than going back to ideological framework. So there is a chance. Now, Al-Nahda part in particular is still defining itself in a way or another in ideological terminology. But slowly, slowly, they are incorporating within them. I mean, there is a great debate now taking place in all Islamic movements about the issue of membership of the movement. Is the member of the movement is the one who is following strict code of religious uh, you know, behavior? Or can we establish some kind of framework why others, where others, if you drink, for example, in wine, let us say, and this is a sin in Islam, and you should not drink wine. But if you are a ruling, a ruling party, let us assume Islamic ruling party, what are you going to do, how are you, are you going to close your membership and make tests for the people, to what extent they are committed or not? Or you are going to open up and start, you know, bringing people around values that the society itself will acknowledge as, as common, in my opinion, the second route will start. It has not yet, but it will start. The beginning of it has started in Egypt when Muslim Brotherhood are remaining as a movement, as Muslim Brotherhood, but they established another party called Al-Hurriya Wal-Adala, Justice and Freedom. And this party, which is Justice and Freedom, the membership of it is free, is, is open for other sectors of the society. The same thing will emerge in Jordan, the same thing will emerge in Yemen, and slowly the ideology barrier will start breaking down and the new definition will emerge. About Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera has never been involved in any revolution. I mean, a lot of people say Al Jazeera has created this, created that. We have not. The last 15 years we were involved in one matter only introducing journalism as it should be balanced, integral, and integrated. What do you call it? Integral, yes. And at the same time, professional. We defended the concept of opinion and other opinion, when everyone else was not able to do so. We introduced the concept of transparency to a society which was used to, to media sponsored by the state, propagating the one message of the leader or message of the government. So that definitely created a new environment in the Arab world and led to much more dynamic, tolerant you know, imagination within our societies. But we are not and were not involved, in fact, in certain kind of plot or conspiracy or open movement or activism to cover this story or that story to lead to certain consequences. We were surprised when I was a director general, don't speak now on behalf of Al Jazeera, I was surprised myself with the magnitude of the revolution of Tunisia. We never expected that to happen so soon. We were surprised by the magnitude of the revolution in Egypt. We did not expect it to happen so soon. No? So it was not really Al Jazeera that plotted, but it was Al Jazeera that covered and Al Jazeera that maybe created awareness within the Arab world that led to the Arab Spring. Chief, just following up on your question, if I may. On that point about Al Jazeera, though, it's not so much the old simplistic accusation that somehow Al Jazeera is part of a conspiracy with either uh, Al Qaeda or more recently with somehow revolutionary movements. But do you accept that? Um, perhaps inevitably with a, 
an organisation that becomes so involved in these issues that there were definitely diff at least different emphases, that there was a, an attention within Al Jazeera upon, for example, some of the, the uprisings in some of the place that, that was not, there wasn't the same energy devoted perhaps to Gulf states um, uh, and to um, disruptive or opposition movements in other places that inevitably you can call it a bias or you can call it a choice, but that it wasn't <coughs> as pure as you claim. I agree. Yeah? Great, that's good. <laughs> but you know, there is one thing. I mean, I agree on the output, which is true, but I don't agree on the reason. We did not decide that we are watering down the coverage of Bahrain, for example, which I think you are hinting at. Yeah. Because all of them asked about the same story. Because we would like the Bahraini story to die, or the revolution in Bahrain to die, and then we are concentrating on Egypt. Because actually, the story of Egypt was so huge, and the story of Libya was so huge, to an extent that if you really define, divide the coverage of 24 hours that you have on the screen, Bahrain cannot get much more what it had done. And in my opinion, we did cover Bahrain as it deserves, because the story of Bahrain started protests where we were at the heart of it. And our correspondents were sending to the world the images of the protests in Bahrain. But the story of Bahrain did not evolve into a revolution because the division of between Sunnah and Shia in Bahrain led to a sort of paralysis of that, of that kind of, 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 uh, of uprising. While in Egypt, we were in front of a society where Muslims, Christians, and all walks of life were unified together in one revolution. The same in Tunisia, the same in Libya, and the same in Yemen. So the issue is, should I give Bahrain the same way of coverage because in order to prove that I am really, you know, I am not under pressure from the Qataris or pressure from any other government to cover a story of Bahrain and ignoring the strategic nature of what's happening in Egypt and happening to Libya and, and also the magnitude of the story and the, and the evolution. Otherwise, you are telling me that you are making the revolution. We should concentrate on Bahrain to make the Bahrain revolution successful. No. The Bahrainis should make the revolution successful so it will be successful on the screen. Not the vice versa. Great. Okay. Moving up. Um, do you mind just getting this chat in the middle? No? Oh, sorry. You first. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Please, you go first. Uh, Nabila Randani, freelance journalist. Uh, sir, you, you discussed the current political situation in Tunisia and the involvement of women in politics. Do you think that past leaders in, in Tunisia, uh, Bourguiba and Ben Ali, promoted women's, uh, women's rights to make themselves more palatable to the West, since it's very difficult to reconcile the promotion of human rights in the framework of a dictatorship? And second of all, you also expressed your fear of um, secular fundamentalism. Uh, do you think that pushing for a secular model in essentially Muslim-majority countries in the Arab world is something that Western governments will try to achieve to reassure themselves? No, first, I mean the issue of women. I'm not saying at this moment in time that women in the Arab world have taken you know, very advanced role in all sectors of the society. That is not happening, not because of political Islam. It is not happening because of traditions and cultures. Local tradition and culture it has its own limitations. By the way, I, I must tell you a story, you know, and I will end with the stories. I will stop taking stories. One day I was speaking to a Taliban leader when I was covering the story in Afghanistan. And I said, you know what? What's your story about this issue of burqa? You know, every woman must be covered like this. 
I said, what do you mean? I said, okay, you are closing down schools and doing these kind of things because girls should, you know. He said, can I tell you something? Do you think that we are capable of asking women to take off their, their cover? I said, why? He said, do you remember that the revolution against the communists started when some people started coming to the villages and telling that girls should go to schools, and when they go to schools, they must take off their, their boko. People revolted against the Russians, and eventually they kicked them out from the country. If we are going to interfere in this particular issue, we will also be facing the same the same, the same design. I'm not sure to what extent it was, but just to tell you something, traditionally speaking, the role of women in the society, in the Arab world, has its own definition. And this is not a matter, is not result result of modern Islamic thinking. It is, in fact, the result of how the society perceives role of women in, this, in, in, in it. So it's going to take time in order to introduce this kind of concept. And Al-Habib Abur Qayba, who was the former president of the, the first president of Tunisia after, I remember before he died, visited his grave, because he, you know, he decided that he must build a shrine, whereby when he dies, he must be put in that shrine. That was in 1989, I visited that place. And I remember that he, in the, the, the gate of the shrine, is made out of gold and written on it, this is the grave of Habib Warqaybah, the, the, the builder of Tunis, and the one who freed women. You remember? So Habib Warqaybah now, in the, collective, in the collective memory of the Tunisians, is a dictator. And in fact, Zain Abidi revolted against him in order to bring some kind of democracy, and again, he fall in the same trap. The issue of women rights was introduced from wrong perspective in the Arab world by secular elite that was not democratic, and at the same time, the rhetoric about it was there to appease Western powers, rather than to create real change in the society. Islamists, because they are organic from within these societies, are more capable of introducing <coughs> women's rights to the society than any other force. Any other force, if it does so, the society will say, yeah, now they are bringing us the Western culture, and look at this. But Islamists, if they do that, then they will be much more accepted because people look at them as legitimate in, in, the, in, their, in them adhering to the values of the society. Secularism. Sorry? Yeah. Radical secularism. Yeah. You know, I think it is a result of the success of Islamic movements that we have some people now warning everyone. I mean, I've just been listening to a story where they visited some secular leaders, and they are really telling them, basically, that these guys are similar to Osama bin Laden. Don't make a mistake about it. Rashid al-Ghannoushi, although Rashid al-Ghannoushi in the 80s, he published his first book about Islam and democracy, and he argued then, when he was an opposition leader, and he was in exile, that Islam and democracy are the same, you know. In my opinion, some people now are scaring everyone from the arrival of Islamists, not because of the ideology of Islamists, but because actually they have lost elections, and the only way that they can reduce the impact of Islamists is by spreading rumors about the Salafis in Egypt. We received last week about six, seven stories about Salafis taking over a village. Salafis implementing hudud, I don't know where. Salafis burning down you know, wine uh, shops, I don't know where. Salafis closing down, I don't know what. All these stories were false. Someone somewhere is trying to spread panic about the arrival of Islamists to power. 
So we should be careful in, in following this kind of trend. You may find the crazy self. You might find someone you know, would like to establish Khilafah tomorrow and kill everyone. I don't know. You may find that. Eventually, we are not living in a, in a platonic society. But at the end of the day, the main trend within the Salafis or the main trend within political Islam is not favoring this kind of dramatic and radical action. Okay, sorry. I cannot get to the chap in the black. And then should we go back up the, the row up here? Uh, yeah, this man here in the colored jumper. Hi, uh, Gazwan Adafai, LSC. Um, just you touched upon the political Islam model being a purely Sunni agenda. How would it fit in a Shia majority country, for instance, Iraq? Okay. You know, in Iraq, Iraq, of course, is something that we need to understand within the context of the region itself. In general, the Iraqi society used to be ruled by, most of the time, governments who were not entirely Sunni and were not entirely Shia. But the leading figures used to be Sunnis, most of the time although the first prime minister was a Shia and the second prime minister was a Shia. Anyway, that is not the issue. In my opinion, the Iraqi society itself has developed with ages. And you know, Iraq was a center of civilization, of Islamic civilization for hundreds of years. Baghdad was the center of the Abbasid civilization for a long time. We have developed proper understanding of coexistence. And we have never had an issue of Shia and Sunnah. We had an issue of Iraqis. I, myself, was the bureau chief of Baghdad when Mr. Paul Bremer you know, decided to invent a new philosophy in dealing with politics in Iraq. And was, I was the first person to interview him. When I asked him what he's going to do, he said he's going to go for the route of debatification, the second one to dissolve the army, the third one, and the most dangerous one, is to establish a governing council based on sectarian basis. I said, what? This is a recipe of destruction. This society, for the last few hundred years, has come to acknowledge the fact that there is huge diversity. We have Muslims, Christians, Shia, Sunnah, Arabs, Kurds. We have hundreds of small groups in the society. And the, if you found a council based on this kind of ideology, then again, we are going into a civil war. He insisted on it. And he did that. Why? I don't know. I don't know why they did that. Why the Americans insisted on sectarian bases I, in my, in my staff, I had about 102 journalists working for Al Jazeera in Iraq, or uh, crews. I have never known who was a Shi'i and who was a Sunni until the first elections that was based on sectarian foundations. And then people started rediscovering themselves. Ah, I am a Shi'i, I am a Sunni. And the new sensitivities started to emerge. Any political installment, any political arrangement in Iraq based on Shi'a or Sunnah will fail. It should be in a way or another, cross realities, and at the same time, it should be based on values that neither the Shia nor the Sunnah nor the Kurds or the Arabs will define. That Iraq will succeed. But the Iraq which we have today is a complete failure. Iraq of today has never been able to establish any political system. The Americans would like always to argue that, you know, we have done a magnificent job, we got rid of Saddam Hussein, we established democracy. What kind of democracy established? Democracy is not working. The government of today, which is a partnership between the Shia majority and the Sunnah, is falling apart and paralyzed. The parliament is not meeting properly and taking decisions. So definitely there's a great failure because of sectarianism, and in my opinion, the future should be towards something much more different. Okay, please. 
Hayyet in medicinal chemistry. Will Arab Spring has any effect on Iranian system? On the? Iranian system. It has to. I mean, no doubt about it. You know, some people now would argue that the beginning of the elections four years ago that led to mass demonstrations in Tehran did give the Arab youth a clue of what they could do in order to start their Arab Spring. You remember Twitter news, news used to spread through Twitter rather than traditional media when Ahmadinejad ran for elections. The region itself is looking at each other and everyone is learning from, from each other. And the most important issue that's going to develop during the next few months is Syria. And as you know, Syria is very much connected to the Iranian understanding of the region. Now, if the Syrian revolution reached certain kind of destination, a success, that will definitely influence the way that the region is structured and definitely will redefine the role of Iran in the region. So that might lead to consequences within the Iranian society that are far important than what happened three years ago. Just following up on that, just to conclude on, get you to make a judgment, if you will. In a sense, the implication of that question is, has Assad and the Syrians learned the lesson of Iran, where there was a kind of Arab Spring a couple of years ago, and through partly through brute force and partly through other systems, that has now been contained at the very least, if not pushed back. Is that a lesson that Assad can learn from? Do you think he's going to succeed in achieving a similar? Or do you think the fact that the context is different now I think has any change? Uh, Assad any has lost. You know. Now, he is trying to delay his departure from power not only because of Syrian formula within Syria, but because also of regional arrangement. There are many parties in the region that, that might not feel very happy and excited for a quick Syrian solution. You know, Iran is definitely part of it. And some Arab governments also might be part of it because they may feel that this kind of wave, if it goes further, very far, without really trying to put an end for it, or at least to manage it, you may also face consequences in your, uh, at your home. So therefore, the excitement about the Syrian issue has different dynamics. Of course, the fact that Syria is the cornerstone of a block that was traditionally known in the region as the block of resistance you know, is also complicating the matter, because there are many other forces supporting the current regime, including Hezbollah and including many other people, Iraqi government, the current Iraqi government itself. So the issue is going to be more complicated than before. It's not an issue of a regime. It is an issue of an alliance and a coalition in the region that is going to defend each other in order to survive. Fascinating stuff. I'm just take two more questions because we are running out of time. One is that lady there, and one is that gentleman there who's had his hand up all the time as well. Please. Um, um, first of all, I would like to thank you. And um, secondly, I would like to hear and. Um, your point of view about um, and, um, and political Islams in Saudi Arabia and how they will be very, uh, how they will going to react towards having um, um, a very um, um, polit Islamic political in the neighbor's country which it will work with the people's will and with democracy and, and without using the old tradition 
and way of using um, the political Islam to suppress the people and you know and just only let them to to do what they wanted to do. You know, as you know, that the, the issue of Saudi Arabia in particular, the current establishment, political establishment, is in alliance with with the Islamic traditional establishment for now long time since the establishment of the current state or the the second Saudi uh, state monarchy. This is actually the balance. The traditional Islamic institution is jointly. Uh, uh, in, uh, you know, with, with the current uh, government. But the revival of political Islam in the rest of the Arab world and in Turkey is going to change that kind of, of reality. More and more people in Saudi Arabia are in touch with the, with the internet sphere. They are more capable of expressing their views and opinion the issue that Islam should be expressed through certain kind of parameters in politics is challenged because there are new movements adopting democracy and also Islamic. So it means that you are not going to hell eventually if you are becoming a democrat because you know there are great ulama who also, like Sheikh Yusuf al-Qadawi and others, say that democracy is good and if you work through democracy to achieve justice, you are as good as anyone else who is doing that. So basically this issue of theology preventing us from becoming democratic is actually fading away. So definitely the Arab Spring is going to spread everywhere and is going to change reality everywhere. What kind of change? It depends on the rulers themselves. The clever amongst them are going to meet the people halfway, like what happens in Morocco. So they have rushed to reconcile, I mean, to, to, to amend the constitution, and they introduced new fair and free elections, and they allowed Islamists to come to power in, in a coalition with other parties, and everything is going well now in Morocco, or at least for now. In Jordan, there is a new dynamics within the society. The society is demanding something similar to what happened in Morocco. We don't know if that will be accepted by the government or not. In Saudi Arabia, yet we still have to see how the government is going to react to the Arab Spring. Qatar has announced that next year they are going to have elections for the first parliament. So okay, let us see also the result of that. So if Arab governments start learning from what's happening, I think they, might, they may survive. Those amongst them who will resist change, then they are going to, to face very severe consequences. Okay, very, very quickly, let's take one last question, please. Uh, my question relates to Afghanistan. Uh, what are Spring will have an effect on Afghanistan when the Americans leave in 2014? And also the, in, in the region like Pakistan, Afghanistan, other, other uh, Muslim countries in the region? No, Afghanistan still has to go through, I mean, long-term reconciliation. Because the, the, the American intervention and the Western intervention in, in Afghanistan has led to sort of polarization within the society. And if you are Afghani, you know for sure that you have the Pishtun who are, in a way or another, classified or been, in a way or another, seen as pro-Taliban. And then you have the Northern Alliance or the Northern uh, you know, nation, the Tajiks and Uzbeks and so on and so forth, who have been also, in a way or another, pro the foreign intervention and the pro the American presence. Now, of course, things are changing because the Americans themselves are leaving and the Taliban itself has become, in a way or another, more 
close the negotiations with the Americans. They have launched now, I think, negotiations taking place right now between the two parties, which could be unimaginable a few years ago. But this is the right thing to do. Taliban has to be included in any political arrangement of the future of Afghanistan. Taliban is a reality. It is a product of the society. It is organic. It is not something that has been inserted. And last 10 years of fight against Taliban could not eradicate the movement. Not only that, a movement like Taliban did not split even. And the leader like Mullah Omar is still controlling Taliban. So basically you are talking about very clear actor within the society. You might disagree with their philosophy and their ideology, but you cannot doubt their strength. On the other hand, the Taliban has to open up for another alliance and understanding with other ethnic groups in the society. They cannot rule Afghanistan without the Uzbek and the Tajik and without the Hazaras and without the other elements and the minorities of the society. Otherwise, again, another civil war will start and the same 90s civil war will be seen again and the same destruction will be seen again. So it is two tracks. People should sort out the problem of amongst themselves, which is national, proper national reconciliation. Taliban say that we will start this, but after the Americans withdraw. The Americans say, let us start this and make the arrangement to guarantee that it will happen. So this is the major issue. Taliban is insisting on the departure of the Americans before any new arrangement is made. And the Americans are insisting on the arrangement before the departure. So this is the negotiations that are going to happen in the next few weeks. Listen, we've, we've covered an extraordinary range of stuff. Um, if you're interested in the media bit of this, then please keep in touch with my think tank, Polis. We've got a conference on March the 23rd which will touch on this. Uh, if you're more interested in the wider Middle East issues, some fantastic events coming up uh, detailed on this uh, leaflet from the Middle East Centre over the next couple of weeks. But please let's end by thanking a, a fantastic session from what I can